Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live to air performances, documentaries, and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R. Time to chat to my first guests for the morning. Joining me in the studio, we have curator Francis E. Parker and artists Amy Spears and Catherine Ryan, who collectively are going to talk to us about the exhibition Borders, Barriers, Walls, which is currently on at the Monash University Museum of Art, located on the Caulfield campus. Welcome to the three of you. Thank you. Good morning. So, Francis, we'll start with you as you're the curator. Tell us a little bit about the the exhibition and what it's exploring. Mm. So it's a a group exhibition uh, with artists from Australia and overseas. Uh, It's been in preparation for about a year, which is perhaps a slightly shorter lead time than usual, but it comes out of conversations that we were having at the um, at the museum about a project that we wanted to do that had um, a political aspect to it. Um, I guess the, the background to that is that um, uh, as, as an institution we were still thinking about the... Um, the implications of the the controversy that surrounded the previous Sydney Biennale in 2014 um, regarding the the principal sponsors' uh, connections to the companies, the, the company that had recently won the contracts to run the detention centres in Nauru and on Manus Island. Um, I think uh, the the show that we did at the end of uh, 2014, which our director Charlotte Day curated, which was called Art as a Verb, uh, which was partly about the agency of artists that picked up on that idea. Uh, and this exhibition looks again at some of those instances. So we um, we wanted to uh, to do a project that uh, drew on that history. There were some ideas that we discussed, like migration and so on, but we kind of settled on uh, on borders because it's a kind of more abstract concept. Um, it doesn't run into the pitfall of um, of speaking on behalf of the people involved. The works in the exhibition address the politics, the official policies, and uh, it's um, uh, and it's also. Being a broader concept, it invokes a whole range of different things. Yeah. Now, I think for anybody hearing the title of the exhibition, Borders, Barriers, Walls, immediately Australia's border protection policies Mm -hmm. are going to spring to mind. The the, the fortress Europe mentality, which we've seen coming into play Mm. uh, more recently overseas as well. So uh, I guess, Amy and Catherine, when you were first told about the, uh, the theme of the exhibition, what were your initial thoughts and how have you started to interpret those in your collaborative practice? So we've been making a series of works over the last year or two that are sort of performance-based and that deal with the policing of public space and all the sort of control and regulation about um, what's possible in public space and the question of whether there is any public space to speak of or whether it's all been, uh, I suppose, replaced by public order. Um, So when we were invited to be part of this show, um, the theme seemed to sort of chime with though that's research and those sorts of works that we've been making. There's often a sort of dark humour to our work. So um, we 
and some works are more humorous and some works are... A more, bit dark. Dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more dark. Um, so um, this, we were excited, I think, by the possibility of uh, taking some of the sort of reference imagery that we like to draw on, so things like border force and then these sort of rather evil technologies like uh, razor wire fencing and that sort of thing and being able to put this in a, a gallery context mm. and think about how this would relate to um, the movement of uh, people through a gallery space. Uh, yeah. And you, a performative aspect as well? Or? Yeah, so um, I'll finish up what Catherine was saying. Like, so basically the reference image that we were using was um, this Hungarian kind of train that was covered in sort of razor wire that was used to block up the Hungarian border with Serbia in October last year, so when the, they were sealing up their borders. So that was our reference image. We wanted to make a kind of mobile razor wire fence that would move around the gallery. Um, but I'm uh, instantly having thinking about <laughs> occupational health and safety. Absolutely. Yes, as did I. <laughs> yes. I don't think anyone on the Hungarian border was thinking about uh, <laughs> occupational health, health and safety, which is, I suppose, one of the, the points of the work in a way. It's, you know, what if you take these uh, these technologies and just recontextualise them um, Different questions are asked, and the mm. yeah, yeah. Everyone was concerned about the people, you know, people's safety in the gallery, but not, you know, they're not concerned about the safety of the yeah. Yes, mm. but um, for the opening, we were asked to sort of activate these um, these razor wire panels. So we uh, we were going to use Monash. Monash's um, security guards, but then we decided that actually we wanted something slightly more stylized. So we use performers who act like security guards, so they wear a uniform, and um, they sort of pushed the the panels around the gallery during the opening and looked menacing. And you know, when you were asked, you know, because um, at certain points we actually blocked the gallery, so people trapped inside certain sections of the gallery, and um, the performers when asked, like, when are you moving, they would be kind of evasive or sort of defer some sort of answer. So, yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> and uh, tell us about some of the other artists who you've uh, invited to uh, mm. participate in the exhibition. Yes, so, um, well, Amy and Catherine's work is the one work that was commissioned for the exhibition and the the rest of the, the works range from... Um, about 2002 up to the present, with the exception of one painting from the 20th century, which is uh, a painting by Gunter Christmann of the Berlin Wall, which he made in 1989, just a, a couple of months before the wall fell. Um, and that painting functions as a kind of a, uh, a prologue to the exhibition. It's hung in the foyer. And the first work that you encounter after that is one by the Greek artist Dene Stratou. Uh, and that involves a, a freestanding wall. And the, the side facing you as you enter has a text which was written by her collaborator, Yanis Varoufakis, which talks about the, the globalising wall, which is the title of the work. And it makes reference to the... Um, uh, the the promise of the end of the Cold War that all of these walls would come down but of course as we know they have just proliferated instead uh, and so the other side of the wall has uh, still images that the artist took that just slide past and there are a number of different locations around the world where there are separation barriers or or particular borderlands and it becomes they become quite monotonous 
So that work addresses very much a, a, an international context um, and, of course, there are works that address the Australian situation. So um, the work from 2002 is one by Tony Svensson, uh, who was a Sydney-based artist now in the US, but um, that was made specifically in response to the Pacific Solution and it's um, three road barriers that have floaties on their feet sitting in buckets of water. It was a, um, a proposed monument for uh, for the Torres Strait um, and, well, I, there are plenty of images of it in our publicity. I don't think I can read the text out on it on radio. I'm not quite sure <laughs> how sensitive your listeners are. But um, but it's quite... Uh, it, it's It's also a humorous work. Um, but quite biting as well. For I guess Amy and Catherine, for the for the two of you, are there other works in the ex- exhibition that have particularly resonated with you? I think um, the Tony Schwenson work is because it sort of contains a fence. Um, I really I really like it, and I, I think <laughs> um, you know because our work is a, a, a fence as well. It's it's funny being in a show where a sort of a fence or a border or a barrier is sort of repeated over and over. Um, the, way, the reason that work resonates is I suppose it indicates what a sort of holding pattern uh, politics has been in. This is, a, a, you know, for the last 10 years. It's a work from 2002 that is unfortunately uh, still speaking to the present uh, very much. Um, another work that um, I quite like is um, uh, Chesworth and Lieber's uh, sound work that was originally part of the the 19th Biennale of Sydney, which is a, a sound work full of um, sort of dictatorial voices and sort of Dalek-sounding voices sort of <laughs> shouting different um, bits of texts from um, works about uh, prisons and about what's permissible um, in public space. I, I like the sort of decontextualised sort of evil voice that's telling you what to do, sort of like a... Barking orders and... Yeah, mm. yeah, sort of like Siri, Siri's come into her own and <laughs> she's, not, she's not happy. Uh, the rise of the machines. Uh, the exhibition that we're discussing is Borders, Barriers, Walls, on until the 2nd of July at Monash University Museum of Art, which was located on the ground floor of Building F at Monash University Caulfield Campus, just uh, literally uh, over the road from Caulfield train station, so very easy to get to if you've not been there before. It's open Tuesdays to Fridays, 10am till 5pm, Saturdays from midday till 5pm, and you can find out more information at www.monash.edu.au forward slash mu. MA. Um, Francis, in terms of uh, public events and uh, floor talks and so forth, mm. anything coming up that we should uh, mention and yes. encourage people to attend? Yes. Um, so we do have a, um, I guess, an, an informal panel discussion on Wednesday evening next week, which will uh, involve Amy and Catherine, uh, as well as Leanne Weber from the, the Border Crossing Observatory, which is a, a research group that's based out of Monash University. Um, do you remember what time that is on Wednesday evening? I should, but I don't. I yes. think it's about 5.30 about or 6. About 5.30 or 6. <laughs> it's on the website. Of course, all the details are on the website. So uh, that's, uh, that's your point of reference if you'd like to get along to Borders, Barriers, Walls or that public event or others mm. as well. I'm sure there's a couple more coming up between now and the 2nd of July when the exhibition ends. So definitely sounds like an intriguing exhibition, one to get along to. Thank you to the three of you for joining me on the show. A pleasure. Thank you. A pleasure. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.
and my next guests have joined me in the studio. Uh, we have playwright Sema Sabawi and uh, director Wahibi Musa joining us to talk about Tales of a City by the Sea, which is on at La Mama Theatre, and it's very rare that independent theatre is talked about in uh, the Victorian Parliament, but <laughs> this production has been talked about in Parliament, it's been talked about on radio, it's been, uh, it's something of a cause célèbre at the moment, uh, and having seen the production in its original 2014 season, um, I've been listening to some of the heated debate around it, thinking... They've not seen the play. <laughs> They've not read the play. They're just jumping on a bit of a bandwagon, I think. So, um, but thank you for putting us in the Hansard and you know putting us in historic documents forever. That's really pretty much appreciated. Palestine <laughs> loves you. <laughs> so. Um, so, Ma, let's start with you. You're, you've written this play, which, yes. as I said, was uh, originally presented at La Mama in 2014. And what was unique about that production was that it was also presented simultaneously elsewhere. So talk to us about this quite dramatic and potent story. Well, the story is um, about uh, so many things, really, but um, I write it as a Palestinian in diaspora who's pretty much connected um, to Gaza, my home city, and to my family and loved ones in Gaza. And so a lot of the stories that get told in these, um, in the tales of a city by the sea, um, are based on real life stories that I've experienced or my loved ones have experienced over the years. And so the, as the script was being written, um, and, um, as it was being developed, it just occurred to me, and I think we were talking with Rand Hazel, we were talking about collaboration uh, with uh, with Palestine theatres at the time, and it occurred to me it would be a wonderful thing to do to connect Palestine, Gaza, and the West Bank, as well as Australia, into this you know, three-city collaboration of putting on a production simultaneously and opening it on the same night. Um, and then, really, life uh, forced its own reality on us. Just two months before we started, ca- we just be- two months before we started the production, when we were looking to do the casting, um, that's when the 2014 war happened in Gaza. And so, our production team in Gaza was hit pretty hard. Two thirds of the city um, was reduced to rubble as a result of the 51-day bombardment, and um, members of our production uh, lost loved ones. They lost. Um, relatives um they lost precious things my production manager ayel zinati lost her entire office and all her artwork and 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 some of it was done for the play you know she she was working on a poster she was putting together a film so it was devastating so it never happened in gaza um in the west bank uh we still continued and we were determined uh, to put on the play here and in the west bank um but uh, just a week before opening night uh, the West Bank camp, Aida refugee camp, where the play was to take place, uh, became uh, fell under some really harsh uh, curfews and uh, incursions by the Israeli army, which interfered with the play opening on the same night. So the the play in the West Bank opened a week after we opened here, and so the ho- the, the story of the production itself became a story of its of its you know a story right. worth telling. Yeah. Well, it's instead of um, uh, art replicating life, it became life replicating art. Yeah. In some ways. So. And, and there was this one night when, when they opened and I, Wahibi stood up and spoke to the audience, which was something that we, you know, wasn't planned. Um, <laughs> I don't know if she wants to talk about it, but we we had to share with them that, you know, our 
um, our colleagues in the West Bank are finally able to open tonight. And Wahibi said some really beautiful words on that night. Now, Wahibi, you were acting in the original production. Now yep. you're directing the, mm. the production, mm. so which must be an inter- give you a fascinating perspective because you've you've performed these words, you've helped bring them to life, uh, and now as a director, you're having to a degree to honour that original production and the original director's intent, while yet bringing something fresh and new to the production as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Um, I have to say, uh, directing is to me a real natural fit. Um, I didn't. Uh, I hadn't thought at all of directing anything of this kind of, in, in my mind, magnitude because it is a big play. I mean, it's a small play in that it's an independent piece, but it's also um, a big play in that there are so many people involved. Um, There are eight actors, um, one singer. Uh, We have three producers, uh, a theatre designer, uh, two stage managers, and, like, you can imagine the conversation lines were just rocking around the city. Um, so that's not something I would have chosen, but when Sima asked me, I re- jumped at the chance because I love this place so much. And I had ideas. Of course I had ideas. Um, <laughs> and, and I immediately felt, actually, that uh, my role this time around was to actually... the very The first season was very much about the structure of the play, giving it a structure, giving it... Um, putting it on in a way that that allows the poetry to flow without it falling into um what's the word I'm thinking of um like it becoming too emotional so uh, when Lech came up with this wonderful kind of Brechtian structure um of alienation and the actors being actors storytellers who are coming to to tell you a story and who are going to sit with you and tell you the story that just felt absolutely wonderful and natural and i didn't want to muck around with that at all and because for me i feel like i am a, a brechtian actor in in my way because i come from that lineage um the the theater style of the middle east is tends to have that alienation aspect to it um so it was a natural fit for me so um that that was great and it worked um this time around i felt that we had the luxury of um going further into the story and looking into the interior the emotional life of the story and the and the characters and looking at their connections with each other also i had four new actors that needed to be brought into the into the story um and as well people who hadn't necessarily had much to do with um, the politics of that region. Um, and, of course, you have to do that research. You have to know what you're talking about and what the, 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 the people in the story, what, they, what their everyday life um, experience is. So I, I've actually... Uh, it's been a great ex- experience to go through that research again for me to rediscover things that I now... that I had started to take for granted, things that I know that other people... For them, it was the first time that they discovered it, and it was—it's been amazing to watch Emina 
Emina Ashman and um, Helena Sawiris, um, who play Jumana and Lama, the two lead female roles, um, to kind of watch them make the discoveries uh, all that I had sort of made about 20 years ago um, and to come to terms with what it means to be in the situation of Jumana and Lama and to have to make the decisions that they have to make. And I do feel like I know that those discoveries have really gone into their hearts from things that they've told me. Now, the play Tales of a City by the Sea, which we're talking about, uh, it is obviously a piece of political theatre, but what struck me seeing it was it's not a, um, uh, a clumsy piece of agitprop. It's a very deeply affecting personal drama at its heart as well. Tell us about writing these characters and investing the story with, with uh, the richness of emotion that certainly touched me when I saw it in 2014. With, with the writing, I really wanted to honour the people, honour the stories that I was telling. And so it was very important for me to make it as, um, as unpolitical as possible, but of course, being Palestinian is within itself as a political statement. As I have learnt this morning, for example, some people have um, who are critics of the play are describing me not as a Palestinian because there's no such thing as Palestine, right? So I am a pro-Palestine uh, campaigner, which I found was very funny and really sad as well because um, there's nothing worse than being denied your identity. Um, but having said that, when I was writing the play, I really wanted something to honor the stories of the people that I was telling. And so I wanted to, to offer a piece of theater that can challenge us and confront us with the realities of how the war has affected the lives of people and also inspire us about how people cope how they survive, um, and, and the beauty of the human spirit, um, how we bounce back after every time that we're beaten and, and we get on with our lives and we fall in love and we have babies and we have weddings and the electricity goes out during the wedding and so we light a candle and continue dancing. These are the stories that I wanted to tell. And so I avoided completely talking about uh, the political uh, or, or preaching in a political way about what was happening. I think the audience is smart enough to come and watch the, the play and if they raise questions as a result of that and if they want to investigate then I've done my job as an artist uh, and the art needs to speak for, the, for itself and it needs to honour the stories that we're telling. Look, it's been interesting from my perspective watching some of the debate around the play unfolding mm -hmm. and uh, the, the claims that it's um, uh, kind of anti-Israeli propaganda, for example, or that it's... Uh, um, uh, and I'm particularly fascinated by people being confronted that it's now part of the VCE syllabus um, <laughs> and calls uh, on the government to, to, to withdraw it. And the government doesn't choose what goes into the syllabus yeah. uh, and if the government were to censor what went into the syllabus that would be deeply deeply concerning and it also fascinates me that some of the critics of the play don't think that high school students secondary school students aren't intelligent enough to watch the play read the play and question it for themselves it's not like they're being spoon-fed yeah. and I, I understand the uh, the vce audiences the the sessions for the vce audiences have already booked out oh yeah they booked out uh, a little while back, but now it's like it's now coming. Uh, we've now got schools coming into the public, yeah, um, um, bookings as well. Yeah. Um, the kids are coming in and uh, really interested in what goes on behind the production 
as much as um, actually tell you the truth. They're they're <laughs> they're kids. You know, they come in to see a show, they get to talk to actors, they get to find out, you know, how does an actor do this, how does a writer do this, and, and that's that's what it's about when you're a teenager. And, you know, they, they get to see women wearing hijab, being flirtatious and falling in love and wanting to get married. And, and they being get normal. To, <laughs> and being normal. They get to see that no matter what happens to you, you have to be able to get back up again and, mm. and you know, get on with your, their, your life. And they get to see some of the details of the lives of people they see for 30 seconds in news clips. Um, Wailing and, and crying so and they, screaming. You know, so, we, you know, they get to see the human That's in the right. conflict area. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's wonderful. And as far as the political the message that they might get out of it is the message might be go and do your research which is a great message go and do your research and also on top of that the beauty of it is they don't, they don't just get to see someone wearing the hijab and being flirtatious and being yep. normal they get to talk to them afterwards when they have taken the hijab off and they realize oh there's a human being under there and she has long beautiful hair and she'll sit there and she'll talk intelligently with us and the girls actually have come up and asked um uh, Amina, uh, how does it feel to wear hijab? Do you mind wearing the hijab? And and Amina, of course, just acting wearing the hijab. But we do have um, Asil who Asil wears does the, hijab the hijab and doesn't take it off. Time and doesn't take it off. Um, uh, Amina is Muslim by by you know she's she's a Muslim woman, but she is not someone who wears a hijab um, normally uh, on very very special occasions. She will wear it, and she's very happy to talk about it with the girls. And I just love that interaction mm. where the girls who perhaps have come from Muslim backgrounds or uh, feeling that they may have to not, that maybe there's a pressure on them not to wear the hijab and there's some kind of a shame. I think it's wonderful for them to see a woman in that role and have a very powerful role on stage and in real life as well. The production is Tales of a City by the Sea. It's on at the La Mama Courthouse in Drummond Street, Carlton until the 29th of May. Performances at 6.30pm Wednesdays, 7.30pm on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays at 4 p.m. Um, runs for approximately 90 minutes and you can book by going to www.lamama.com.au or by calling 93476142 and if you'd like some more background about the play including previous productions, some of the media response to the current season and more, you can go to talesofacitybythesea.com But hurry because it's booking fast. I was just going to say there's only three tickets left for tonight's performance Friday sold out so come on get your tickets people yep. we want to see you there it's going to be popular <laughs> i can guarantee that thank you both for coming onto the program thank, thank you. you for complete access to the triple r archives which include over 100 interviews live to air performances documentaries and other triple r specials become a subscriber via the link on our website thanks for listening to triple r The Man of Mode is a production that's on at Chapel of Chapel in Paran from the 18th until the 28th of May. It's uh, been described as a comedy of manners. Uh, and joining us to tell us more, uh, director Dirk Holt and actor Josh Futcher. Welcome. Hello, studio. thank you. Thanks for having. It's actually probably more like a comedy of bad manners. It is actually when you think about it. They the, the things that these guys get up to on stage is quite salacious. 
Now, this is a, a play from the 1600s, isn't mm, it, right? A, a yeah. restoration Vintage. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> We're bringing it back. It's retro. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a restoration comedy. What does that mean? Um, well, originally penned by Etheridge. He, he was a, a playwright in the time after Shakespeare. So uh, Cromwell came in, there was a plague, theatres got shut down, no more singing, no more dancing, and uh, the people didn't like that very much. There was a rise against the Puritan mob, and... Uh, was it Charles II? Mm-hmm, correct. Got put in. I always get confused with my Charles's. Uh, he re- he's returned to the throne, and um, once again the theatres are opened. But the style of theatre has changed. It's become more satirical. We're talk. We're damning the man, and uh, we're you know having a comment on social politics mm-hmm. and sexual politics. It's the first time, and the first time women are on stage yes, as well. Yes, I was thinking that because this is around the time that those, as we saw, kind of the restrictions of the Puritan era start to relax. Then lots of things changing, including the way you can satirise people on the English stage. Yes. Um, so. Uh, Josh, who is the man of mode satirising? Well, it, is, it, is it satirising or just slandering? I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> for, for me, uh, the, Doramont, the, the leading man, is who I'm playing, and he, he is the man of mode, and he, he speaks about uh, you know, wanting the, the world to be a, uh, a place without a painted face. And so at that time, there was so many... You know, If we talk about just performance in general, there was so much painted face going on in stage and he just wants to see the truth, basically. And, and so there was so much um, walking through the streets and parading yourself for show rather than just getting to know who you really are. And so the the mode, the fashion of the time was to put on an air and as much as he is putting on an air, he is probably the most truthful out of all of them. Um, in a in a probably a quite a harsh and, and evil way. <laughs> it's an interesting balance then between yeah. that notion of adopting a front, putting on a facade, and dr- then dressing it up with lace and frippery exactly. and, mm. and a beauty spot. Um, uh, but then also stripping that away to be more honest, more truthful, possibly more venomous in your honesty. Mm. Absolutely. And what's really great about this text that we have from Janet Dimelo is where it's it's sticking true to a large part of the restoration feel, but we're using a contemporary language now uh, and not only that but a, 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 a conversation between the restoration playing style and a contemporary playing style as well so some scenes are very forced I would say in their um, melodrama but then we come back to a really naturalistic playing style to show you know the inside and outside lives of these characters so um, it's, it's coming along we had a we had a brilliant rehearsal last night where everything <laughs> kind of just started to solidify we go yes this is it this is what we're doing yeah it was great it must be a challenge to direct something uh, a, a play like this where you've got a number of different tonal styles that mm. you're working with and you've got to contrast them but make sure they're not clashing yes and then also make sure that it's not just descending into chaos and and bad fast rather than the kind of perhaps exactly. fast that you're aiming for. Exactly. And with so many people on the stage at some times, and with a very, very minimal set, um, absolutely it has been quite challenging to kind of find all of these through lines um, and and keep them sharp with we, when we've got all these different voices that are mm-hmm. telling their own different stories. And there are levels of that, um, uh, you know, the inside and the outside life that are happening. What's been really beneficial for me is to, to find the heart of the matter of this play that really, for me, speaks to Doramont's through line. And it's about how he strives to live his own life unapologetically. Um, the original pay, play penned by Etheridge kind of gave 
the lead character, Doramont, a happy ending. Now, Etheridge kind of liked the guy and uh, maybe wrote him in, in, in history in a way that Doramont might not have wanted to be remembered because he was, you know, into the sex, drugs and rock and roll and really wanted to be remembered as a bad boy, maybe. Uh, and that's what Janet Dimolo has allowed this character to be. Doramont was originally based on John Wilmot. Yeah, that's right. That John Wilmot was the second Earl of Rochester, and he uh, was the the rock and roll poet of the day. He was the, pretty much the first rock and roll star ever. But if you speak about poetry as rock and roll, yeah, yeah. so uh, in the the the, uh, the Byronic fashion, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mad, bad, dangerous to know. Yes, so yeah. it was sex, drugs, and poetry for him. Um, but he he was a real um, you know man about town, and he was respected. He was a wit. He was one of the real uh, original. Uh, satirist. He was one of the greatest writers of, of that time, and and Etheridge was a very close friend, and so they they wrote or Etheridge wrote this play about him with best intentions. But um, I don't feel that. Well, I personally don't feel that John Wilmot would have been as happy with the outcome as he would have liked. <laughs> How much research do you have to do when you're playing a character like this? For for me personally, quite a lot. Um, when it is well, it's it's based on this character loosely, and I'm lucky enough to have I've known about John Wilmot for a long time and been a bit of a fan myself. And um, there's another play written about him, The Libertine, which I'm a really big fan of as well. So I had already done a lot of um, search into this man and it's someone that I really love to, to play and there's a, a great line in the, the play that somebody says about him is that he's the, the man that every woman wants to be with and every man wants to be, you know, it's that, that, that deep dark part of every man that wants to come out, you know, and but we are forced to, to hide it for social society. Um, but a lot of research into the history of the guy and and what makes him tick because there is so much surface about him there is so much of a a front and you do need to get to what's lying beneath and for John Wilmot it was you know severe alcoholism it was you know he he died of syphilis there was so much about this man that that made him tick so it was really great for me to to get down into depth and then to come into this play the man of mode which is uh, you know putting on these these big over the top acts to then find how that informs these big gestures, physical gestures as well as emotional. So it's been really fun. And, Dirk, you mentioned earlier a large cast. There's, what, 11 actors on stage? 11. That's pretty big. Yeah, it's it's fun, though. Having 11 actors uh, who are all working part-time, you know, this is independent theatre, so uh, I'm really fortunate to have cast not only talented people but very generous people to come and be part of this project, uh, working around their own work schedules. Um, and we've got all shapes, sizes, ages. Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> the production is The Man of Mode. It's on at Chapel of Chapel from the 18th to the 28th of May. Uh, bookings at chapelofchapel.com.au. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Thank yeah, you. it's a romp. Um, look, just before we wrap up, Josh, uh, in terms of sharing the stage with ten other actors, yeah. um, are you going to be elbowing them out of the way to make sure that you've got the limelight? Or Not at all. I, I get it enough. I get my own chair, and uh, I'm quite happy to, to share that. And, I'm, and like Dirk says, they're all great and wonderful, and I love working with them all, and they, they make me look better, so I love them for it. Well, let's uh, acknowledge some of them. Who are, who are you acting alongside? Absolutely. Well, let's reel off the list, shall we? We've got Leah Bolsh. Yep. Uh, Liz McColl. Yep. Matty Young. Yep. Tamaya Bantam. Josh Futcher. Thank you. We have Jake Fahelly 
Philly. Philly. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Yeah. Jake Philly, who's playing our young MC. Uh, 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 um, Louisa Fitzharding. Mm-hmm. And, gosh, who am I thinking? Dom Weintraub. Weintraub. Did you say Liz? Yes, I did. Good. Am I up to 11 yet? Uh, I was counting. counting along, Richard. <laughs> what are you doing? There's just so many. It's like yeah. sneezy wheezy. Well, um, it's, it's good just to see a large cast on stage. Yeah. Uh, both on main stage theatre and independent theatre, mm. there's often so much focus on, right, for, just to make it realistic in terms of staging, yeah. we can only have two actors or three actors at most, perhaps. So. Yeah. And then we've also got to fit the hoop skirts on there as well. So it's... Emma Percy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You'd kill me if I forgot her. Emma Percy, I love you. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so hoop skirts, so well, the costuming's going to be fun. Well, not for oh, me. Not well, me. I, that's yeah. the, what's another Unless one you're of you. hiding under <laughs> Exactly. Well, let's not get into that. Well, we're really <laughs> playing up the fact that this, this play is being told out of time, that it's sitting out of time. The prologue has a prologue. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's really something that the, the set is, is not what you think it's going to be. The costumes are all kind of basic, but then dressed with a flavour of something else. So, yeah, it's... It's, it's interesting. No hoop skirts, but we do have some bustles. We do have fans. And there are masks, but they might not all be used in the way you think they're going to be used. Okay. The Man of Mode is on, as I said, from the 18th to the 28th of May at Chapel Off Chapel, 12 Little Chapel Street, Paran. Bookings at www.chapeloffchapel.com.au. Tuesdays to Saturdays, 8 pm. Saturday, the 28th at 3 pm. Sundays at 6 pm. Uh, and previews on the 18th and 19th of May. So uh, I, I do like a good preview sometimes because you can actually see the, the play still being made in front of your eyes almost. So that's kind of well, fun. Come along early. Guys, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, chook us for the production. Thanks so Cheers. much. Thanks for having us. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.